Happy Labor Day weekend, uh, as I'm sure many of you are aware of. Tomorrow will be the 142nd Labor Day in the history of the U.S., right? There's your little tidbit to walk away with. It was first proposed in the late 19th century, Labor Day, in the thick of the labor movement. Uh, It was proposed as a day intended to celebrate the hard work of people uh, in a way of, of protecting the intensity of that work so that it didn't become abuse. Uh, and so it was a day of celebration. It was originally marked by parades and speeches and so on. Uh, nowadays, Labor Day typically just means you have the day off of work and that school and football are beginning. Uh, we don't tend to think much about our labor on Labor Day or Labor Day weekend. But what we have tended to do is especially when meeting someone new, will often ask or be asked, so what do you do? What do you do? Right? You've probably heard that question before. Um, Now, some of you probably really appreciate that question. It gives you an opportunity to share about something that fills most of your time, right? Uh, I mean, traditionally, 40 hours a week, every week, that's a third uh, of a day, right? Eight hours, so on and so forth. It's a lot of time. So that question can be a great gift. Oh, yeah, I'd love to share. Here's what I do. Others may feel put off or frustrated by the question. Um, But I'm sure that you found some way of responding uh, in that situation. If you're in the latter category, I'm sorry about what's about to happen, but just hang in here for a minute. What I want to do is invite you to turn to to one or two people next to you, uh, perhaps even someone you don't know as well, and answer the question, what do you do? What do you do? So take a moment turn to someone near you. How do you answer that question? All right, I'll call our attention back together real quick, but I'm going to give you a second question to consider, Um, a related question. So when I was growing up, uh, particularly in church and youth group and college ministry contexts, we often heard a lot of talk about finding God's calling on your life. Uh, What has God called you to? Have any of you heard that kind of question before? Yeah? All right. Uh, So the answer may not come as easily or or obviously as, as that first one, but once more, I invite you, turn to one another and share, how do you respond to that question? What has God called you to? Go ahead. Okay, okay, I'll call us back together again. Um, Real quick, before we move on, anyone want to share what they heard in their conversations? No pressure, but an invitation. Did you learn anything new about each other or yourself? Yeah? Yeah? I see a hand. Uh, 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What are you called to? Love, learning, and help. You've already preached today's sermon. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love it. Um, So throughout life, uh, these two questions, what do you do and what has God called you to, uh, often have had the cultural expectation of being answered with a job title, right? There's, There's often this expectation that we answer with a job title, teacher, nurse, engineer, student, etc. And if we don't have a readily available job title, or if our job doesn't seem prestigious enough, then we may feel frustrated. Or maybe we'll answer kind of apologetically, oh, I'm just a stay-at-home parent. Just? Really? That's hard work, right? Uh, or maybe saying, well, I'm, I'm retired now. Well, in my experience, from my observations, retired people tend to stay as busy, if not more busy, than people who are working are, right? There's plenty that life is filled with. Or perhaps your life doesn't come with a simple response to these questions, so you kind of scramble around for an answer that you think might impress the person you're talking to, uh, just to kind of meet them where they are in some way. Whatever the case, there's often been this cultural expectation that these questions, what do you do, or what has God called you to, need to have the answer of a job title. But here's the thing. Scripture has a lot to say about what God has called us to, and yet very little to say about our employment or our job titles. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're heading, where we're beginning this morning. Uh, We're going to be flipping around a little bit. But this morning, we're going to be exploring what it is that God has called us to in our daily work, our daily lives and our daily work. We're going to be looking at a couple of passages, but we'll begin really with just a single verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's very short. I'll read it one more time. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word and for your call on our lives. 
I pray that as we consider the words of your Scripture together today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what has God called you to do? Well, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This passage is succinct. It's a really brief and succinct response and answer to this question. Notice how short and simple, and yet also how broad and all-encompassing this single verse is. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you're a CEO, janitorial staff, a stay-at-home parent, a retiree, self-employed, a student, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, right? So if it's a white-collar desk job dealing in meetings and memos, or if it's a blue-collar field job dealing in tools and tasks, whether you're a word person or an action person, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, and whatever kind of work it is that you do, do it as worship to God, giving thanks to God the Father. You see, we tend to compartmentalize our lives into these different parts, right? There's sacred things over here like church and faith and prayer and Bible and, uh, you know, whatever that looks like for you. And then over here, there's everything else, right? There are worship things and there are work things. And these are two different things. But this single verse shatters the divide that we put up between these two. It removes the compartments and tells us your life is one thing. Your life is just one thing. Worship and work are not two separate things. Your work is part of your worship. And I will emphasize, when I say work, I don't mean your job title. I don't mean your employment I mean the tasks and activities that fill your everyday life. Your work, your daily life is part of your worship. Whatever you do, do it as worship to God. Now, what exactly does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? Right? That's what it says. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? This is a phrase that we typically put at the end of our prayers, right? In Jesus' name. Amen. But what does it actually mean? Right? I love Andrea's already shared a little bit about what it means to hallow God's name. That God's name is God's reputation 
right? And so there are at least two meanings to this idea of doing something in Jesus' name. To do something in someone's name means to do it for them in their place, but also to do it like them in their way, right? So first, doing it for them in their place, it's acting as a kind of representative, Right? Think of an ambassador who speaks and acts as a representative on behalf of a president or some kind of ruler. Right? They're an ambassador. Uh, their words and actions are in the name of whoever they represent. And when they act or when they speak, it is as if the person they're representing is doing it. So to do something in the name of Jesus, is to act as a representative of Jesus. So, when you're on the phone with someone at work, it's like Jesus is on the phone with that person. Whenever you're helping a patient, it's as if Jesus is helping that patient. When you're working with a client, it's as if Jesus is working with that client. When you're managing an employee, it's as if Jesus is managing that employee. Do do you see what I mean? When you're sitting in a class with fellow students, it's like Jesus is sitting there in that class with fellow students students. When you're parenting your children, it is as though Jesus is parenting your children. I mean, we could just keep going down the line. To act in the name of Jesus is to represent Jesus in whatever we do. And so that's what it means to do something in someone's name. And this naturally leads us to the second meaning. Because if acting in someone's name means doing something for them in their place, well then, as a representative, it also means we need to do it like them in their way so that we give an accurate representation. It's that classic question, what would Jesus do? But even better, how would Jesus do it? And this is where the church has so often failed and fallen short of its calling. And it's why I believe so many people have walked away from church. Because the church is meant to be a representative of Jesus that does the things Jesus did the way Jesus did them. And yet often the church has not done things the way that Jesus has called us to do them. Because doing things in the name of Jesus does not mean doing things only that Jesus did, but doing them the way that he has done them. Jesus declared the kingdom of God, and yet so often the church has done it the way of Caesar, with force, rather than the way of Jesus, with sacrifice. Jesus worshipped his Father, but the church has often done this the way of the Pharisees, with religious duty, 
rather than the way of Jesus with heartfelt devotion. You see what I mean? Doing something in the name of someone means we must do it like that person in a way that accurately represents them, that accurately shows their reputation. So, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it in His place, but do it in His way as well, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Right? This is all high-level, lofty stuff, and it all makes sense in theory. But what does it actually look like in the stuff of everyday life? Right? What does it actually look like? Well, Paul, as he writes this passage, anticipates that question, so he keeps writing. Let's look back at the text in Colossians chapter 3. The very next verse, verse 18, he continues and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers or parents, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And masters, provide your slaves with what is right and what is fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, ripped out of the context of history, these verses may seem totally random, Right? How does that follow what we've been talking about all morning? But in the, and, and then in the context of church, for those of you who've been around church for a while, these verses might be loaded with all kinds of harsh and harmful teaching about hierarchy and such. But let me show you what Paul is doing here as he actually writes these verses. See, in the ancient world, Pre-dating Paul by a few hundred years, there was a well-established set of things that came to be known as the household codes. It's the way that households function. The philosopher Aristotle wrote about them at length in his treatise called Politics. And he writes, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves another of a father, and the third of a husband. All things rule and are ruled according to nature. The freeman rules over the slave, male rules over the female, and the man rules over the child. These 
are the household codes of the ancient world. They're simply the way things are, the way they were understood to be according to nature, right? These were the basic job descriptions of the ancient world. But I want you to look back at the text and see what it is that Paul does. Because Paul takes these ancient, well-known job descriptions and he rewrites them in the name of Jesus. He rewrites them in the name of Jesus so that they will be done for Jesus and like Jesus. Right? So, he begins by addressing wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. And that would have been a very familiar phrase and refrain in the ancient world. But Paul adds to it, as is fitting in the Lord, which means there are exceptions to this kind of submission. Submit, yes, but not to ridicule and not to abuse. Only submit as is fitting in the Lord. And then he addresses husbands. And the familiar instructions from Aristotle were simply, husbands, rule over your wife. But Paul changes this completely. And he says, husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. Husbands are not to rule over their wives at all, but to love them. In the book of Ephesians, Paul expands this by adding, love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul completely rewrites the familiar job description in the name of Jesus. And then he keeps going. He moves on to addressing children and parents again, uh, rewriting what was familiar. Aristotle simply said, fathers, rule over your children. But Paul says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. In other words, Paul says, be a father like the one Jesus showed us. A heavenly father who loves his children. And finally, Paul addresses slaves and masters. Once more, a well-understood job description in the ancient world. And once more, he rewrites this familiar refrain. He addresses the slaves right where they are. And he encourages them to do their work in the name of Jesus. Reiterating what he has already said in verse 17 by saying, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, because it's the Lord Christ you're serving. And then to masters who were used to being told a very simple rule over your slaves and servants, Paul writes, provide them with what is right and what is fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Do you see what's going on in this passage? Do you see this pattern 
that Paul is working with time and time again. Paul takes a very familiar job description and he rewrites it so that it's carried out for Jesus and like Jesus and also to Jesus as worship. So here's what I want to do. I want to pause and consider the answers you gave at the very beginning of our time. What do you do? What do you do? And whether it's a job title or anything else that comes to mind, I want you to consider how might your job description, how might your daily activities be rewritten in the name of Jesus? Just as Paul has rewritten these ancient expectations to become something that is in the shape and way of Jesus, how might your daily life and activities be rewritten in the name of Jesus? What does it look like to work where you work in the name of Jesus? What does it look like to go to school in the name of Jesus? What does it look like to be an engineer in the name of Jesus? What does it look like to be retired in the name of Jesus? What does it look like to you fill in the blank in the name of Jesus. I certainly can't answer the details of that question for each of you today. But what I can offer is three things to consider. As we've already said, doing our daily work in the name of Jesus means doing it in the way that Jesus would do it. So to see the basic shape of what Jesus does and how Jesus does it, flip back just a few pages from where you are to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is one of these foundational passages in Scripture that describes the shape of Jesus' life and offers us insight as we consider the shape of our own lives. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. This passage shows us the basic shape of Jesus' life. He came in human likeness. He died on the cross. And he was raised in glory. Incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. These are the basic qualities of Christ-likeness. So to put them in terms of our daily life and work, presence, service, and glory. Presence, service, and glory. I'll say a little about each of these. First, presence. Jesus was, in the very nature, God. He was made in human likeness, right? He was the very nature God, but he was made in human likeness. The Gospel of John puts it this way, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Gospel of Matthew says it this way, that Jesus would be known as Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so Jesus, God, the Word, did not remain far off, but he became flesh and came to dwell with us. And so the first aspect of a Christ-shaped life is presence, being with. He came to be present with us. And Jesus was present to people all throughout his life and his ministry. He was interruptible and he was available. Right? When a man came asking Jesus, will you heal my daughter? Jesus went with him to see the man's daughter. On the way to see her, a woman comes up and touches Jesus' robe, wanting healing, and Jesus stops and looks at her and addresses her. He's interruptible. He's present with the people who come into his path. So I want to ask, are you present in your daily life and work? Are you present to the people that come across your path? Are you present in the places where you are? Our cultural emphasis on productivity have a tendency to distract us from presence. In our attempts to get things done, we often become impatient with others and unkind to them. But what would it look like to be truly present to our coworkers, to our children, to our family, to our neighbors? Daily life and work in the name of Jesus means being present wherever we are. It also means being a servant. That's the next part of this. Philippians says that Jesus took the very nature of a servant. And Jesus himself, during his ministry, said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He tells his disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the smallest, the one who rules like the one who serves. In our culture, we tend to see work as a means of self-advancement, right? Work is a way of advancing ourselves. We build our reputations and our resumes. We make money and climb corporate ladders. But a Christ-shaped job description will approach work with a posture of service. Whether you are at the bottom of a company's org chart or at the top, in the name of Jesus, you come to serve. So what does it look like for you to serve your customers and clients? To serve your children and family members? If you're in such a position, what does it look like to serve your employees? Maybe there are specific actions that you feel moved to take in service to the people around you, but it might also simply mean a change in attitude to the actions you're already doing. Daily life and work in the name of Jesus will look like service. And finally, glory. Glory. This one is the least tangible uh, to wrap our minds around, uh, but it may be the most important of all of them. Because Jesus did not only come and die, he was also raised in glory. Every week we pray, as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This prayer invites us to imagine what God's glory looks like in our daily lives and work. So what does it look like for God's kingdom to come in your workplace? What does it look like for God's kingdom to come in your home, in your family, in your neighborhood? Are there downtrodden people who need to be lifted up? Are there those who do not know Jesus who can be invited to, in the words of the Philippians passage we read, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? What does God's glory look like in your daily life and work? What does it look like for God's kingdom to come in your daily context? Living and working in the name of Jesus will look like presence. It will look like service. And all of this points to the glory of God. So, I want to ask one more time, what would your job description be if it were rewritten in the name of Jesus? What does it look like to remove the barrier between weekend worship and weekday work so that all of life, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, will be lived in the name 
of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.